Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you for tuning in. And as you can guess, we have got so much to cram in in our time together. If it's okay with all of you, I'm going to save some of the thoughts on Israel Gaza to your brilliant questions. It was the theme of the podcast last week. And yeah, loads of really important and interesting observations and points and questions um, coming up. Uh, I think it will be the theme that dominates for weeks, perhaps months to come, because there are so many dark interconnections. Um, and uh, yeah, anyway, that's that's to come. A couple of notices. Uh, as ever, I want to thank those of you who subscribe to Patreon. Do subscribe. It, even in a cost of living crisis, it's a bargain. And it helps me uh, continue to work with the great podmasters, uh, Simon and many others who help with the podcast. So yeah, do please subscribe if you can. And um, thanks for those of you who came to King's Place on Monday night. Some Patreon subscribers might be hearing this before Monday night, but most of you will hear it afterwards. I'll tell you what happened in the next uh, podcast. And thanks to all of those who came to the Ilkley Book Festival for a great evening there, where I was talking about my new book, Turning Points. And it was brilliant afterwards. The conversation carried on as people very kindly queued to uh, sign books. Ilkley is a lovely, lovely place. It's got the lot, really, if you like walking and so on, uh, and arty things. Uh, yeah, and the next uh, live show is at the Rope Tackle, the legendary Rope Tackle Arts Centre on uh, November the 1st. So see as many of you as possible then. God knows where we'll be by then. Um, yeah, I'm going to reflect before we get to questions about Israel, Gaza and other topics. I'm not going to just focus on that this week for lots of reasons, partly because I did last week, partly because I said it's going to run for a long time. And also, it is fast moving and can date very quickly, but not your questions. They are timeless in their gravity. But we also have those two by-elections. And as I have been talking about by-elections for a long time and arguing that the series we've had recently are significant, not all are. Some are very quickly forgotten about. But I think uh, the sequence of by-elections culminating in uh, the two we had last week, Tamworth and Mid-Bedfordshire, do become inevitably significant when uh, Labour make such huge and significant gains in both seats and uh, in the build-up to a general election. It again shapes the mood or reinforces the mood. It certainly doesn't challenge the mood that Labour are heading towards power. And there's no question that uh, the bulk of the explanation is the anti-Tory mood, uh, the low turnout and, you know, Tories staying at home kind of was the only thing that the conservative people, the poor sods put up on the media on the Friday could cling to, you know, that their supporters stayed at home, they didn't rush to Labour. 
I doubt if that's true. By-elections often have a low turnout, and Labour voters don't turn out either, or Lib Dem and so on. So it's probably not true. But I think we can sense the anti-Tory mood. And I want to reflect on that a bit, because what is remarkable about the Conservative Party is the way that actually when you look back, and you know there's all this talk and we've indulged in it a bit uh, in our time together on this podcast, is this 92, is this 97 or whatever? The answer is every general election is distinct and this will be a distinct election next year. But I do want to go back to 1997 briefly because if you reflect on the state of the Conservative Party after that slaughter in 1997, and look at it now, um, one of the most remarkable things is actually the failure of the Conservative Party to move on from the 97 slaughter and the way it has clung to power since 2010 has been more a reflection of its agility in terms of holding on to power and the weakness of Labour than anything else. Uh, because after 97, the Tory party did not really reflect seriously about why it was slaughtered after 18 years in power um, and have not really done so ever since. Um, if you think about the sequence, after 97, William Haig came in. Now, William Haig now is a thoughtful, reflective, measured columnist and commentator. But after 97, he was a young leader who panicked and moved his party further to the right than it was under John Major when they were slaughtered in 1997. He did almost Liz Truss-esque things. He proposed a tax guarantee uh, to the alarm of his then shadow chancellor, Michael Portillo, because it wasn't properly funded, the tax guarantee of tax cuts under a conservative government. So it was kind of Truss-esque. And he intensified rather than challenged the party's Euroscepticism you know, going to Dover, his campaign to save the pound and all the rest of it. Um, even though Labour by then had um, uh, pledged to hold a referendum on the euro if it was ever going to um, contemplate joining. So that was Haig. Then it elected Ian Duncan Smith, who was more Eurosceptic and to the right than William Haig in many ways, though not all, not all. Um, that was a disaster. They brought in Michael Howard, who kind of steadied a sinking ship. Then they brought in Cameron, and we've talked a lot about uh, the Cameron era uh, in this podcast. It's an important one to understand British politics. He talked a lot about modernisation, but in many ways he was uh, at least as right-wing and to some extent more right-wing than Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s. And in a way, the Conservative Party keeps on being praised to this very day almost for its unique adaptability to changing times, part of an explanation as to why it rules Britain for so much of the time. I don't think it adapts well at all. In a way, it is still absolutely trapped in the 1980s, now quite a distant decade 
from where we are now and the challenges we face now. And that's one of the problems Sunak has. He is a a 1980s-style Tory. With um, He famously had a portrait of Nigel Lawson, a 1980s Chancellor, on his uh, desk in the Treasury. Similarly, George Osborne, when deciding what to do in response to the 2008 financial crash, who did he phone up? Nigel Lawson and Geoffrey Howe, who was still alive then. And as some of you know from this podcast and perhaps elsewhere, I really like Geoffrey Howe and Nigel Lawson. Uh, and uh, both were really weighty figures in an era where figures in politics were still big. Um, but they were wrong in the 80s and they were certainly wrong by then. But Cameron and Osborne couldn't see ahead. They looked back. Um and they only won in 2010 uh, uh, in terms of forming a government uh, because the Lib Dems joined them. They didn't win an overall majority in 2010. After 13 years of Labour rule, very unusual in Britain for that to happen, and after a global crash which um, destabilised to some extent that Labour government, and with um, uh, the more militant Blairites spending most of their time in the final years of that parliament trying to get rid of Gordon Brown as prime minister. Blissful ingredients to a successful conservative opposition party. But Cameron and Osborne hadn't adapted and modernised uh, in any serious way. And so they didn't win uh, in 2010. And yet on another level, they won hugely. They got in without having won an overall majority, implemented most of their radical right ideas in terms of economic policy, uh, public service reform and many other areas, Euroscepticism of various manifestations. But they d were dependent on their very brilliant, subtle manipulation of Nick Clegg and the Liberal Democrats. Then we know what followed, the Brexit referendum, Cameron went, Theresa May came in. Of the Tory prime ministers that have staggered on in this period, she was the most serious-minded and the one with greatest integrity, but she lost the tiny majority that Cameron had won in 2015, in 2017. So once again, they were clinging on in a hung parliament. Soon the Tories got rid of her, brought in Johnson, um, who began an even wackier, destabilising, reckless period in government. Then we had a year ago Truss, and now we've got Sunak. Uh, no point throughout that period was there a serious, substantial discussion about why Britain turned in the way it did in 1997. Uh, they kind of hinted every now and again, we got glimpses of some attempt at making sense of that colossal defeat, the 97 one, uh, when Theresa May said, cautiously, we are perceived as the nasty party. Didn't say we are the nasty party. We got it in Cameron's sort of pale imitation of Tony Blair and um, the social liberalism uh, that uh, Osborne felt instinctively uh, and Cameron came 
to learn. Um, but these were glimpses of uh, thinking, not a deep reflection on what went wrong then, why they then mainly staggered on with no majority or tiny overall majorities before the December 2019 big victory, which was based on a Brexit fantasy and a cakeist manifesto uh, that could never have been delivered by Johnson, Truss, Sunak, anyone. Um, and no wonder, in the end, voters turned. There was a point in the Johnson leadership when he was being mendacious, chaotic, dangerously so, in the pandemic. And by the way, I promise you soon we must all get together to, to follow the COVID inquiry, which is going to be and already is utterly devastating. Um, anyway, but during that period, Johnson retained a great popularity. And some of you might remember I did a podcast where I know I sound calm and kind of, you know, very mild on this podcast, but I have explained before it's an act. There was one time I got really pissed off and just said, what, is, what, what does it have to take for England to turn uh, when so much was going wrong and yet uh, Johnson was winning the Hartlepool by-election and way ahead in the polls and so on? And kind of to, to my surprise, we've got an answer. When England turns, it turns in a quite sweeping way. And uh, uh, the by-elections, actually mid-beds was extraordinary because in some respects it was better than uh, New Labour in the build-up to 97. There was a by-election in the build-up to 97, Littleborough and Saddleworth, where... In effect, Labour and the Lib Dems were battling it out. And the Lib Dems won. And, you know, all the Labour stars were up there fighting that by-election, Peter Mandelson and others, but the voters chose the Lib Dems. In this seat where the two sides were battling it out, they chose Labour. Although some of you have written in, Venetia Kane and others, pointing out in some ways the fragility of that victory, uh, but I can tell you it re remains a huge achievement for the Labour Party in a battle with the Lib Dems uh, for voters to choose Labour uh, in, in a seat and in, in not one of its by any means kind of strongholds. Um, anyway, we've got more emails direct from the constituency to come. But it seems to me, and I'll conclude here and then turn to some of your points because it, they provide a guide to some of the other things going on at the moment. Um, I remember having a conversation with Blair uh, once and he was saying that the Tory party in some ways have a big advantage in having all these newspapers supporting them. Although, of course, a lot deserted them when Blair was Labour leader. Uh, but he said... One of the disadvantages uh, was that they tended to give the worst possible advice to the party they support. And weak leaders felt compelled to take that advice. And it was um, a perceptive point, uh, and it applies now. It was fascinating reading the Tory papers after those by-elections. The Telegraph leader on the Saturday... Uh, is worth digging out if you can be bothered, but you need, and I'll tell you. I mean, it was basically saying 
they, they, what Sunak's got to do and now is basically readopt the Liz Truss economic policy. Tax cuts is what they were calling for, and no explanation as to how they would be funded. All their columnists screaming in the same way, Lord Frosty Frost in there, having declared he would be willing to be a Conservative MP to save the country and the party. God help us. Anyway, Lord Frosty Frost, tax cuts, spending cuts, and all this kind of thing. He never, Frosty Frost, specifies where the spending cuts should fall. He's never been a serious minister. He was briefly, of course, in the Cabinet doing Brexit. But when he was faced with the consequences of his own ineptitude, he resigned, um, grandly pretending he was resigning over the restriction of uh, freedoms under COVID. It was nonsense. He just couldn't cope with um, the consequences of his own ineptitude. There he is. Yeah, we, what we want now, this is what Liz Truss did a year ago and caused this uh, chaos. And But that's the kind of advice Sunak will be getting from the papers that supposedly support him. And a lot of Tory members will be reading it, nodding with varying degrees of passion, depending on how old they are. And uh, on it goes. But if the polls are right, they're going to be slaughtered again. Um, whether they are going to prove to be right in a year's time, no one knows for sure. But if they are, this party of uh, government, England's favourite party of government, has a choice to make. It can either do the same thing again, which they did after 1997, and not have a serious debate. I mean, one of the uh, advantages for Labour in an otherwise uh, disadvantageous context of having all the media going for it most of the time and the BBC hugely influenced by Tory columnists and newspapers um, is that when they are slaughtered the whole mood of uh, the media almost makes it unavoidable for them to have a serious post-mortem and to change accordingly. Um, quite often that isn't the case with the Tories as with 97. So they've got the choice. They can either go through the whole sequence again, uh, elect someone far less substantial than William Hague, who, by the way, at the beginning of his leadership, did intend to change the party and did in some ways. Remember, it was Hague who gave, uh, probably mistakenly, um, Tory members the vote in a leadership contest. And the theme of his first leader's speech was, it's time to move on. And he kept on repeating this phrase, it's time to move on. Uh, but he didn't really specify very clearly moving on from what to what. Um, and so none of them did what, you know, Neil Kinnock did in the 80s with Labour and, um, and so on as one example. So what happens will affect us all in a way because, say, voters do. I don't believe we're seeing the end of the Tory party for one moment. Voters in England, though not Scotland and hard, rarely in Wales, will uh, turn to it again. So it matters to all of us whether this time there is a more substantial debate. Don't necessarily hold your breath.
And now, your questions. And just a reminder that if you want to join our never-ending conversation, uh, the email address is steverick14, steverick14, at icloud.com. And I'm going to begin, because I was just thrilled to get it, uh, an email from uh, Dr. Susan Lintott, who um, is based in Cambridge. I almost went to the gallery where Susan is based some of the time, uh, but we, we missed each other. But anyway, last week's podcast was tricky. Uh, obviously, I focused, and some of your questions were already focusing on Israel-Gaza. Uh, so any, anyway, I was kind of navigating through this uh, nightmarishly dark situation. And Susan writes, I was so relieved to hear your podcast on Israel, Gaza, and nuance, the need for nuance in this highly charged nightmare. And and Susan says, now this is something you should all follow every week. I listened to it twice. I'm really thrilled. Um, and uh, yeah, she also notes that Keir Starmer, and, and by the way, I never show off on this podcast, but I did say uh, last week before it really kicked off that I wondered whether the commentariat's universal praise for uh, Keir Starmer's early response to the Israel-Gaza nightmare would change and become a bit more critical. And it changed almost as the podcast went out because that interview he gave to LBC where he appeared um, to uh, give uh, Israel the go-ahead for blocking water and energy supplies to Gaza um, was kind of, I mean, I don't know what was going through his mind at the time. It might have been exhaustion. It was in the midst of about 10,000 interviews during the Labour Party conference, uh, the most exhausting context for interviews. Um, but he might have meant it. It might have been this kind of thing that I explored a bit last week, you know, when he is, I won't be Jeremy Corbyn. I will not be Jeremy Corbyn. I'll never be seen as Jeremy Corbyn. I've kicked him out, blah, blah, blah. And in doing so, sort of overcompensates. Who knows? Who knows? Um, anyway, um, there was quite a panic at the top of the Labour Party about the reaction of Muslim members, uh, councillors, and so on. And this had to be a very rapid rebalancing and a lot of dialogue with uh, Muslim councillors. As Susan notes, um, King Charles did a better job at getting that balance right at first. It is extremely difficult. And she does say, P.S., the effort to balance competing sympathies is exhausting and adds so many go er no-go areas among friends. Yeah, exactly right. And I'm going to give you an example of how challenging it is from two emails with very different uh, perspectives. So first of all, uh, Andrew Anderson, who spent a lot of time in Gaza, uh, lots of visits. And Andrew sent me a long email. I haven't got time to read it all out. But he, at one point in the email, reflects, at, you know, what do the Palestinians do when politics breaks down, uh, uh, you know, before this current nightmare? when routes towards, um, say, a two-nation settlement seem to have been blocked. And he says, he, he met the last time he was in the area, all of those Palestinian and Israeli human rights activists we met 
with despaired at the ever more extreme Israeli government, the continued expansion of settlements and the weak response of the West. I am a bit of a sceptic on the usefulness of boycotts and sanctions. But as the Israelis increasingly targeted those calling for such non-violent strategies, I heard more and more Palestinians saying, what are we supposed to do? And now, the answer to that is not the act of terrorism from Hamas. This is me talking. Um, but it is part of the context. And I say, uh, Andrew spent a lot of time there. For a different but nuanced point of view, uh, Helen Gordon, Helen the Baker, uh, uh, wrote to me. And again, it was a long email. I haven't got time to read it all, but here's a bit. Uh, Netanyahu and the fanatics in his coalition have shown the grim and very worst consequences of right-wing populism as they fundamentally failed in the main duty of government to keep its citizens safe while they were trying to upend democratic accountability. Um, yeah, and there's some friends of ours actually uh, were in Israel, Helen, and took part, this was before the nightmare of October the 7th, took part on a huge demonstration against Netanyahu and his government. Uh, I think uh, they told us there were 175,000 people demonstrating. So when we speak about Israel, that doesn't necessarily mean the Netanyahu government, even in its latest manifestation formed out of desperation with a few more people coming into the uh, coalition. Sorry, that's me talking. Now back to Helen. You ask about the precise aims of Hamas. Their charter states these are to eradicate the state of Israel entirely and to undertake jihad among the Jews. Of course, there is nuance in the Israel and Palestinian causes, but there is no nuance with Hamas, who are a genocidal group of fanatical uh, terrorists. I attended the demonstration last week supporting Israel and calling for the hostages to be released. There were no calls for harm to the Palestinians at this. On the contrary, a great concern for the plight of the Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, there's much more to that email. By the way, uh, yeah, I, Hamas is part of the complete breakdown of politics when you have a group wanting the wipeout of Israel through violent means. Um, I was actually not referring to that. I was referring to one of the, I think, many dangers of the current situation is the imprecision of the war aims um, and Hamas, what it was trying to achieve by the horrors of October the 7th. And Israel now, by saying they want to wipe out Hamas, but it's not clear what form Gaza would take subsequently. Um, uh, is what I meant. But there we are. There's two kind of different, slightly different, but nuanced different uh, perspectives. Uh, and thank you to both of you. Matthew Ryder from Huntington in Cambridgeshire says, what's your view about the role of the UN in this dispute? I'm an admirer of the UN, but they often appear to be powerless when conflicts between nations arise. Secondly, I was struck by President Biden drawing parallels between the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and the troubles in Northern Ireland. How much of a parallel do you think there is? I read those out because Matthew has written an email which could take up two podcasts, one on the role of the UN, one on Northern Ireland, and whether there is any hope to what happened there uh, in the current situation in the Middle East. Now, I haven't got time to do, or we haven't together, two 
extra podcasts on those themes, but maybe soon um, we can address them just very briefly, therefore. Um, the, the UN does seem pretty powerless. And, um, you know, um, look at its role in recent conflicts, whether it was Iraq or the current situation. And it doesn't seem to be a key or the key player. We know in the current situation, certainly vis-a-vis Israel, it's the United States. um, And the United States allies then play a part, but only in conjunction with the United States and the UN. Um, Anyway, Another time, the Northern Ireland is is really interesting because the only way that politics can become central is when some of those who have left politics behind for the horror of force decide that it's not working. And that's what happened in Northern Ireland. It took the likes of Gerry Adams to decide they weren't winning with force. And then for the likes of Adams to convince others that there was an alternative route. And then for big players in London and Dublin to engage with this new approach. And then for other parties who had been involved in uh, violent conflict in Northern Ireland to engage with those who had resolved to follow an alternative route. And, you know, at the moment, it looks impossible, uh, a resolution in uh, Israel, Gaza and the wider region. And of course, one of the reasons why this can be a running story is the implications for the wider region. But it takes that kind of thought process for it to happen. Um, We're nowhere near there at the moment, but many people despaired even in the 1980s about us getting close to that in Northern Ireland. And by the early 1990s, it was beginning to take shape an alternative route, which for all the problems is still pretty robust, though Brexit and Frosty Frost and Johnson's version of Brexit have really tested the whole thing. Um, Now, from a French perspective, because it's really interesting, these tensions now are being duplicated all around the uh, Western world. Uh, Britain, we explored a bit last week and this week. Anyway, our correspondent in France, Dominique Jewell, gives us uh, illustrations of the tensions there. Uh, She says, here in France, the footballer, Karim Benzema, I don't know if that's the pronunciation, but is taking legal action against the interior minister, uh, Gerald uh, Damanin, and the far-right politician, Eric Zemmour, or is it Zemmour? Uh, Benzema has commented on uh, developments in Israel-Palestine, in which he expressed support for the residents of Gaza and referred to them as victims yet again of unjust bombings, which spare neither women nor children. Damanin accused Benzema of having strong links with the Muslim Brotherhood and Zemmour linked Benzema's politics with the murders of two teachers who were recently killed in Islamic terror attacks. While this is insignificant in the context of the horrific developments in the Middle East, it's nonetheless indicative of the deep sensitivities which exist in a country which is home to approximately 6 million Muslims and 500,000 Jews. 
and which suffers regular terrorist attacks against French Jews and the French state. No wonder the security system here has now been elevated to its highest level. So it's happening in France as it's happening here and so on. Uh, there'll be so many brilliant questions. Let's go uh, to one more uh, from Simon Duffin, partly because I have to say I'm thrilled to hear from Simon. Because the last time, I don't know if any of you remember, but I do, we heard from Simon. He was living in Australia. And on one occasion, uh, when I think he was driving whilst listening uh, to the podcast, or I don't know what was going on, uh, but he was seriously injured by a kangaroo. You know, the hazards of living in Australia. Anyway, he's in Scotland at the moment. And he says, um, so far, he has avoided any kangaroos on the Scottish roads. Well, I'm reassured to hear that, Simon. It's a well-known danger in Scotland. And I've yet to see any deer on the roads. But, oh my, the pheasants make driving difficult up here. Oh, my God, Simon. You don't get run over by a pheasant. Um, anyway. He also uh, asks interesting coverage about balance and in the media. I've been struck uh, by the coverage recently on uh, uh, a TV news channel on the awful events in the Middle East. I've actually stopped watching news reporting on this, not because I'm not interested, but because I find it pointless to listen at great length to a ranting Hamas spokesman, followed by an Israeli mayor or representative from the IDF. As outsiders, we learn nothing from either side viewpoints, in my view. They never answer any questions put to them by the news reporters. So it's just a platform for each side to vent their feelings. So why do news programmes in this country continue to seek out this type of coverage, instead of, say, looking for more nuanced opinions, or dare I say it, expert voices, who don't take sides? And he gives an example of uh, possible experts. He says, is it a symptom of the same problem the BBC had over Brexit? Um, is it the present-day media's lust for a yes-no, for-against debate? Um, yeah, I think these are interesting and uh, complex questions. I've watched as well, and I bet you all have, because we're all kind of, as Simon said, you want to turn away, but you can't really turn away. And some of the sequences, though not all, do have this thing of a representative um, either defending or trying to defend or not wholly condemning the October the 7th attack on Israel. And then someone from Israel noisily now attacking the BBC as well as putting the case from the current Israeli government's perspective. Um, and it, it, it's circuitous and angry and, and and it doesn't shed much light. But I do see experts getting a look in as well, Simon. Maybe I'm watching more than you. I mean, you're probably having to spend a lot of time just getting back to your house with pheasants and everything else. But um, the, the, there are kind of measured voices, but there is an instinct, and you're right, it happened in Brexit too, where to stage a debate that then gets clipped on Twitter you know, some obvious row, which you can predict in advance what form this row's going to take, is the kind of focus of some programmes. You get BBC One's question time, you just give up with that. And it does happen, and it happened in Brexit and uh, was a factor in Brexit, but only a small one. Uh, yeah, actually, on, on that uh, 
Thank you, Simon. Um, uh, on that very point, um, I had an email from Nick Radcliffe, uh, an active member of the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. Well, you all are, by definition. And he was just saying, I've just finished your Turning Points book, uh, and it's very nice about the book. So thank you about that. Uh, in all good bookshops, online, great Christmas present for those you like and don't like. Um, anyway, he disagrees, though. He says, one of your conclusions, I, however, I disagree with and don't really understand your logic. When discussing Brexit, you, that's me, say, and this is, I think it's a quote from the book, uh, unsurprisingly, the UK voted to leave. It would have done so if there'd been no Nigel Farage or Boris Johnson or Dominic Cummings, the three men widely credited with bringing about a historic turning point. Nick says, I could hardly disagree more. Um, although I agree the debate has been poisoned, not least by Johnson for years, given the 52-48 result, I think without any one of them, the referendum would have gone the other way, uh, let alone all three of them. Uh, and then he was we goes on to a wider theme about the great man theory of history versus the tides of history. Is it big personalities or uh, great leaders? Um, uh, yeah, well, again, uh, we should have a whole debate about this. Uh, not only that very interesting juxtaposition, the tides or the great leaders, the great figures turning the course of events, um, but in this specific I've always been of the view that the moment Cameron announced there was going to be a referendum on our membership of Europe, there was only going to be one result. Uh, enough people were going to vote no. Uh, for the, It had been a debate poisoned for decades by then, and um, it was a form of empowerment to a voter, uh, which it was going to be in the Britain of 2016, too tempting to bring about change rather than voting for the status quo. And I thought it was interesting when Nick uh, Macron was in London and on Andrew Marr's show, and Macron said that if there were a referendum in France, France might well have voted the same way. Um, I think it was the decision to call the referendum that was fatal. And although Cameron handled the subsequent events terribly, um, it was that decision that led to Britain leaving. Now, great questions from many, uh, many others, but I think if it's okay with all of you, I'm really tempted by, um, I'll, I'll, actually I'll read out, um, yeah, let me just read out, um, uh, no, no, oh God, I don't know what to do, there are so many. I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. Uh, why don't we get together again, maybe later in the week, or um, I'm going to save some of these questions if we don't do that for the beginning of next week, because they're great. They're all about lots of different things. Uh, focus groups, a very interesting point from Sean Farrell, who's just left the Labour Party, and he explains why he has done so. Um, there's a very interesting one. I love these ones. Looking back in time from Fraser Odes about whether we should, in the light of uh, Braverman and uh, uh, Sunak's tolerance of Braverman, revisit the heat 
leadership of the Tory party um, and the revisionism would be very positive about Heath. We've had, um, actually, I will read this one out from Steve Tatlow because by the end of this week, we won't be talking about mid-beds much. And one of the joys of this cooperative is we get emails from people directly on the scene, so to speak. And so he says, greetings from the Labour Republic of mid-Bedfordshire. Who thought that that would be the opening sentence of any email in recent years? He says, oh, he said, I'm going to the event at King's Place with my wife and daughter. Oh, that's great. Well, I, by the time you have heard this, hopefully I'll have seen you. And he said, I'd be interested in your view on the overriding theme, constantly promoted in Lib Dem leaflets, that this is not an area that Labour can win with accompanying dodgy graphs. Personally, I think that the demographics of a clearly overwhelmingly middle-class area where plenty of people are commuting to work in London, Milton Keynes, etc., is hugely different from other so-called semi-rural areas, Devon, etc., where the Lib Dems have done better uh, and believed were comparable to mid-beds. Uh, that, I think, is really uh, important and is part of the reason why Labour can dare to hope that they could win pretty big, uh, if not very big, um, at the next general election, demographic change. And so in mid-Bedfordshire, it wasn't like uh, some of the by-election gains uh, that the Lib Dems have made recently, say, in Somerset um, in the summer. But it's happening on the south coast as well. Uh, a lot of seats that the Conservatives held pretty safely are now uh, marginal or going to go Labour, like councils have, Worthing Council, for example. It's because of demographic change. You know, so a lot of people who can't afford to live in Brighton go out to uh, along the south coast uh, in previously much more solid Tory areas. And it's interesting what you say about mid-bets, that it has changed. Although I have to say... Um, you know, Steve, uh, just in December 2019, they returned Nadine Doris with a huge, huge majority. So that commuter belt has become a bit more radicalised uh, towards Labour very speedily. Um, but I think demographic change in a lot of these seats is a kind of interesting, understated factor. And we've got it there direct from uh, someone in the constituency. Um, so, yeah, we've got Sean Colson wondering about whether I would like to be an MP. I'll tell you the answer to that one when we have our session together later this week or at the beginning of next, and loads of other good points. So uh, let's get together soon. But thank you so much for listening to this. Say, if you went to King's Place, that's great. Hope to see some of you at the Rope Tackle uh, on the South Coast in Shoreham on November the first but we'll be getting together again before then and maybe a bonus one uh, later in the week because there have been so many different points I wanted to get across um, but I thought most of the questions should be about Israel Gaza given the gravity of the situation there and that I would talk about the by-election so that was the kind of dance I was aiming for uh, this week a dark kind of dance um, uh, but more to come. So thanks so much for tuning in. So I'll kind of end with this every time now because apparently it makes a big difference. If you could leave a review, but only if you like it, that would be great. And uh, let's all keep in touch. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.